All right. So before we begin this next installment of Shoot the Shit with Bikes and Nick, uh, I asked Nick to give me a prompt, a sentence. Uh, His prompt was, it would be sooner rather than later that I would have to learn how to clean the liquids from my bed. Very suggestive, I'm going to ask. Okay, so so Nick, do you know why I asked you to do this? Zero clue. So I, I was just watching YouTube, doing the whole YouTube binge, and I found there was this AI learning machine thing, a mm-hmm. uh, model called GPT-2. So what it does is that it is trained to predict the next word in a text and it actually learns basic competencies and grammar and stuff like that. So you can put in any prompt and it's scouring the internet for millions on millions and millions of articles trying to predict where this story is going next. So I will read off to you just a snippet of what this computer has created. All right, so here we go. It would be sooner rather than later, that I would have to learn how to clean the liquids from my bed. Now, this next part is completely AI-generated. At night, when it is absolutely cold, I would either have to sleep on my elbows and be curled up or on my hands and have a pillow between my legs. Because I am fairly flexible, I can pick up a pillow pretty easily. I would have to sleep on my hands. This is one of the key points of living in a cold climate. Having to go out at night is a key part of winter survival. So the camping experience for me, when I was out for a long time, was kind of where I had to learn to go without using energy to warm up my body. Which, and then it ends. Where's no, it going? Nowhere near what I thought of when I when I gave you the prompt. Um, it's pretty it, good, it isn't is it? Interesting, though, yeah. It's pretty good. Okay, well, anyway, hey, the power of internet, man. The power of internet, the power of computers. Well, anyway, hey, Nick. How's it going? Oh, uh, you know, just trying to dodge corona from the second surge up here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shout out Greg Abbott. Um, <laughs> is that too political? No, I don't think it is. Whatever. Well, anyway, so this is episode two. Um, today, we're going to, my understanding is we're going to do a little little sports, little sports talk. Yeah, yeah. With the with the lack of sports for the time being, we were gonna just create a little game ourselves. Yeah. So so, can you explain exactly what you had me do? And I just want to real quick. I want to reiterate to anyone that is listening that this is definitely Nick's wheelhouse. All right. He asked me to do this. I I I know sports. Kind of. I've been a San Antonio Spurs fan, you know, ever since I came, moved to San Antonio. Ever since I brainwashed you once you moved here. So pretty much. Yes, you you did brainwash me and it worked. And the Spurs organization is the best organization in sports, if not basketball. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just want to emphasize that Nick, he does the data analysis thing. He has spreadsheets for like fantasy. He gambles and stuff on this. I just, I don't know. It, this is obviously your wheelhouse. So, so I'm, I'm my objective for my sheet for my team is just to impress you, to impress you with the solid picks that I have made. And that's, so that is my, that is my hope. But anyway, so, so can you explain like what were the parameters of this and you know, why, uh, kind of like what, what, what's going on here? 
Yeah. So um, essentially, uh, with the current NFL offseason and then with uh, assuming that we have updated rosters, we each had to create our own full NFL team. Um, the caveat or, or the twist here is that you can only choose one player from each team when building it. And so since there are 32 teams in the NFL, we made sure that this was a 32-person roster. So we threw in head coach, offensive and defensive coordinator, uh, multiple flex positions, um, and special teams just so we could really fill the roster out to 32 because we know there's not that many different positions. Um, but yeah, so so for instance, um, if I took Patrick Mahomes from the Chiefs as my quarterback, I would not be able to take Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, um, you know, or any other player, right? Or um, what's the, uh, right, Tyron Matthew. Uh, so, so that's the way that this game works: is you are limited to a, a player from each team. Um, I guess in this instance, because I thought of this example beforehand, but you you would be able to take Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in this instance now because they're on separate teams. Um, yes. So yeah, without further ado, we were just going to kind of delve in and see what each of us could come up with um, at, for our teams. Um, and, and yeah, we'll figure out how that goes. Before we begin, Nick, I just need you to understand how hard I worked on this spreadsheet. Can okay. I ask, you know can I ask how long it took you to do it? It took me probably four to five God. hours. I'm not I'm not lying. I really, really, really tried hard, okay? And that's because I wanted to impress you. I wanted to impress you despite my lack of knowledge about the NFL. Uh, and different positions. For example, I had to look up some of these position terms. Really? <laughs> yes, I did. For example, I saw um, I saw OT, and I was like, "What? What is OT? What is that?" And I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh, tackle, offensive tackle. Damn. Okay." So, I I really, really, really tried my hardest here. But without further ado, let's get it going. So, we'll start off with coaching. Yeah, sure. So we'll start off with coaching um coaching i do have to preface by saying that i spent too much time trying to make sure that i could have a stacked team player wise and so my coaches instead of trying to work around to where i could get quality coaching staff i kind of just left it as is uh so who do you have for coach i want to say that i have the opposite um i had the opposite mentality i believe that good coaching means good teams even if you are a professional athlete, you need good coaches. So I, so my coaching staff were actually the first people that I filled out. So do you want me to go head coach offensive and defensive or just head coach? Just head coach. Just head coach. I've got the magnificent Andy Reid. So so but that means that means you lose out on all Chiefs players, right? This is this is true. I lose out on all the other Chiefs players, but I have the man, the myth, the Hawaiian t-shirt wearing legend, Andy Reid. All right. A solid choice. Obviously, solid choice. He just won the Super Bowl. Um, of course. Yeah, he, he was before that. He was, what, the most winningest coach to never win a Super Bowl? And then now he has that. So congrats to Andy Reid for that. Um, I took Jay Gruden of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, you know, the oh, Jaguars. brother to John brother Gruden. To John Gruden. He's, he hasn't. He he's not the worst. I understand the Jaguars aren't a top tier team at the moment, but he he's proven himself in times of horror in previous positions. So uh not not a not a completely horrible coach. Uh but obviously, you know, not a legend either. 
Um, let's move to offensive coordinator. So I got Dowell Loggins of the New York Jets. And I think he just joined the Jets. I think he was on the Titans beforehand, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think later on I'll be able to prove that my player core does not require a coaching staff, but th- that's who I have. How about you? This is false. You Every player needs a coach. All right. And also, I also want to preface my next two decisions for offensive de- and defensive coordinator. All right. So these people technically are, yes, are head coaches, but due to vacancies in their positions, they also have to play as offensive and defensive coordinators. Is that, is that fair to say? Are you, are you, can you give me that? Sure. Okay, so then my offense coordinator is Sean McVay. I feel like I feel like it's yes, cheating, sir. But okay. It is not. No, 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 because he is the offensive coordinator as well as being the head coach of so Sean McVay, offensive coordinator, Rams. All right. Um, how about defensive? Bill Belichick. I, I yes, guess sir. he is listed as their defensive coordinator, so that one's yes, fair. Yes, sir. Dude, I'm telling you, I told you, this coaching staff is stacked. Andy Reid, Sean McVay, Bill Belichick. Oh. All right. Um, so my defensive coordinator is Ken Norton Jr. Um, I think a solid defensive coordinator. He practically Very built, solid. Uh, I want to say, the Legion of Boom in Seattle. So, you know, he was able to recruit that much talent. Um, and I think he's back in Seattle after doing something else. Um, but yeah, so pretty, pretty solid. Um, I would say, uh, I, I want to, how about my coaching staff? Yeah, obviously amazing. Cause you got Bill <laughs> Belichick, but it's like at that point, it doesn't even make sense to have your offensive coordinator and, uh, head coach there. if like Bill Belichick is just there. It's just three. They're the three musketeers of the NFL. You've got, an old man, the you know one of the winningest head coaches without a Super Bowl ring. All right, you've got the youngest head coach to win a Super Bowl, and then you have the man, the lit, the legend, the myth, the legend, Bill Belichick. Just three, the three Musketeers, just oh, out coach any team. Okay, um, I want to end on, on like run uh, quarterback, running back. And like receiver trio. So let, let's jump to the least exciting thing. So let's go returner, punter, kicker. Okay. Returner, I've got Tyler Lockett from the Seahawks. I, I respect that choice. I think that's a good choice. Very solid. Yeah. Um, I got Jakeem Grant of the Miami Dolphins. I think he ranked fourth last year in best return after Tyreek Hill and a couple others. Very interesting. I, I will say, though, I... I imagine how hard it was for that Dolphin spot because the Dolphins don't really have a lot of good players. They don't. And that that's why... Besides Tua. Th- that is why I ended up slotting my special teams with the Dolphins player. Mm, sounds about right. All right. For, for punter, I have Brett Kern. I do too. Oh, <gasps> amazing. From the Titans. Mm-hmm. Very solid punter. He's... um. I, I I forgot the stats about him. I know I looked at the stats for for my kicker, but well, uh, who's your kicker? My kicker, I've got Josh Lambo from the Jaguars. Ooh, okay. He's a little bit oh. young. All right, he's been he hasn't been in the league for a while, but he has an eighty eight percent. 
Um, and he's made, I think, 130 something. So pretty solid kicker. Very solid kicker. Just doesn't necessarily have like the the resume as a, a lot of other kickers. Um, so I have a distinguished veteran, Matt Prater from the Detroit Lions. Oh, so so bring, bring in some experience to the team. But I think you'll soon learn that I have plenty of experience on this team. So I don't need a coaching staff. I don't know how many times I'm going to reiterate that, but. <laughs> now every I, okay nick i'm i understand okay but you as a spurs fan should know, I know that I know. even the best players require great coaches mm, all right no nonsense coaches all right so uh we can go to safeties next i imagine yeah sure let's go safeties okay so my strong safety i've got lamarcus i Joyner. do too Man, see, we're just on the same wavelength, man. Lamarcus Joyner, very, very, very yeah. solid. Uh, free safety, I've got Harrison Smith. He, he, what team does he play for? Um, he plays for the Vikings. Interesting, interesting. Okay. I put Earl Thomas from the Ravens, probably one of the best safeties man. of this past year. Earl Thomas. Oh, man, my UT heart is just bleeding yeah. right now. I really, really, really wanted Earl Thomas, but I had another position that I really wanted filled. And unfortunately, that's the way the game goes. Interesting, interesting. All right, um, so your cornerbacks now. All right, cornerbacks. I'll I'll give three because I use my, for, for my flex spot, right? right? Um, so I've got Chris Harris, okay. James Bradbury, and Micah Hyde. Micah Hyde from the Bills? Yes. Interesting, okay. I feel like you're really relying on your safeties. No, uh, I'm actually not relying on my safeties. Okay, I will say the the corners are a little bit on the weaker side. They're solid players, mind you, but it's just it's a little bit on the weaker side. But that's you know it is what it is. Okay. Um, I think I got probably the two best cornerbacks of the 2010s: um, Stefan Gilmore and Richard Sherman. Oh, man. Okay, I will say Richard Sherman kind of got wrecked by Stefan Diggs. Yeah. I, I forget what game it was. Maybe it was... I forget what game it was. He also got wrecked in the Super Bowl, but... <laughs> he did, so... Okay, so very solid, very solid. And then, um, sorry, third one was uh, Kendall Fuller from the Redskins. Okay. So I'd say that you definitely have the edge on the cornerback trio yeah. over mine. You want to go? You want to go linebackers next? Yeah. So linebackers again, probably the best in the game. Uh, Khalil Mack, Von Miller, and Eric Kendricks. That is interesting. I have Khalil Mack and Von Miller, but for my flex, I've got Avery Williamson. Okay. So, okay, also on the same wavelength. I mean, it's just it's just a no-brainer at that point. Of course, you've got to have Khalil Mack, and you've got Von Miller, the killer, on yeah, your team. Yeah. Like, they're just going to wreck any offense. It's crazy. Um, is it the Old Spice Hats that season? Yeah. yeah. Um, Von Miller. So, D-line, do you want to do, like, interior, or do you want to do the edge? Um, let's, do, let's do interior first. All right. Um, so, I had Aaron Donald, obviously. Um, Cameron Hayward of the Steelers and then at nose tackle I got Geno Atkins from the Bengals interesting okay I actually have Geno Atkins as uh, one of my uh, one of my defensive tackles not my nose tackles uh, 
Uh, I have Danny Shelton as my nose tackle and then Grady Jarrett as the other um, defensive tackle. Okay. Dang. So, Did you figure out what yeah. the purpose of a nose tackle was when you were doing this? Nope. Okay. So, no idea. That was one of those things that I actually had to really look up. I didn't understand what a nose tackle was. So, so to my understanding, um, if you are in a 4-3 offense, that's that's four linemen, or four D-line, right, and three linebackers. Um, so in that case, your four and your four D line would be two defensive tackles and two edge rushers. Um, but if you are in a three four offense, you have three D linemen and four linebackers. Um, in which case, of your three linemen, you would have the two edge rushers and then one nose tackle who's stationed directly across the center rather than in a gap. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Okay. So, so the thing about like uh, defensive tackles and nose tackles is that is that those positions can kind of shift depending on uh, what the what the defense is kind of calling for at the yeah, time. Yeah, they can shift in formation. It's just that some players are better at being at a nose tackle than they are in filling in a gap. And so I just kind of so then they're so so they're like a dedicated nose tackle. Yeah. So so you bring them in whenever you decide to have a three four mm-hmm. offense or defense rather. Okay. Cool. Uh, now for the rushers, oh man, also two of the best in the game. Oh, is my QB going to be scared? JJ Watt and Fletcher Cox. Those two monstrous human beings coming right at you. Oh, dang. So I also got JJ Watt, but I got Joey Bosa on the other end. Oh, Joey Bosa. Very solid, very solid. All right. Um, I think least exciting thing on offense is the O-line. So you want to go left to right on your O-line? Yeah. All right. So left to right, Trent Williams, Brandon Scherf, Ryan Kelly as a center. Ooh, that's a good choice. Zach Martin from the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And then David Bakhtiari of the Packers. Do you did you did you have any similarities? Yeah. So my right tackle is the same. But so I got Tyron Smith of the Cowboys, Quentin Nelson of the Colts, probably the best left guard right now, Mitch Morse mm. from the Bills, Joel Batonio, and then David Bakhtiari from the Packers at right tackle. Amazing. All right. Now, now what we've all been waiting for. Um. Actually, I kind of want to. No, no, we'll just we'll start at QB. Who's your QB? The one, the only. You might get a little angry at me, Lamar Jackson. I mean, it's fair. He's MVP. He's Madden cover. Right? Like it's fair to take him at this point. I just wanted Earl Thomas. I love Lamar Jackson. I mean, like I really, really, really wanted Earl Thomas, but just Lamar Jackson just made people look silly. Like they were like they were out there playing on ice skates. He was juking him out. He has an amazing arm. Just overall, just ridiculous. So I had to go with Lamar Jackson. So at QB, I have a guy who's a seasoned vet, Super Bowl winner. Um, I think passing touchdowns leader of all time, but uh, does need some educating on racism in this country. <laughs> Oh, God. I did pick up Drew Brees. 
you know, man, when, okay, when that entire situation happened, when he made commentary about the Black Lives Matter movement and about the American flag, it, a lot of people had a lot of really good points. I think Shannon Sharp said it best when he was like, Drew Brees was one of those characters where you just did not expect you know, that sentence to come out of his yeah. mouth. Maybe something like Nick Bosa would say, you mm-hmm. know, but definitely not something that Drew Brees would say. Um, for for reference, anybody that really isn't in the sports world, um, Drew Brees basically said, um, uh, in, in or when reporters asked him about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have happened after George Floyd's death, um, he kind of reiterated um, his stance on uh, respecting the American flag. Um, it was also kind of adding Colin Kaepernick, right? I think he was just talking about how how kneeling during the anthem was also disrespecting the flag and those who fight for it. Right. Uh, now, mind you, he did make a statement afterwards After uh, retracting the entirety of Twitter. Sports Twitter called him out. Not just sports Twitter, his own teammates. His own teammates. Even right, like Called Emmanuel out. Sanders, I think, um, Michael Thomas, I know LeBron did. Just all sports Twitter, all sports players, professional players were just very grossly disappointed with his with his statement. So he retracted it and he says like, you know, I learned, I know it's not necessarily about, you know, a disrespecting servicemen or the flag, but okay. But that's your QB. That's your QB. That is my QB because... Solid, he, he restored hope in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, to be quite frank. He did. He really did. Uh, you want to go um, You want to go running backs? Yeah, sure. Okay. So for my flex player, I actually picked up a running back um, because as, as like a pseudo halfback. Okay. All right. But so for my two running backs, I've got the Christian McCaffrey the super soldier himself. Mm-hmm. And then I also picked up Kenyon Drake from the golf, from the dolphins. Interesting. So I picked up Saquon, Saquon Barkley as my main running back and I put CMC in the flex. Ooh. Okay. That is very solid. I, I wanted Saquon, but it just came to the point where I just, you know, I was looking at the roster and I needed other places to fill. And, you know, I thought that having both Christian McCaffrey and also um, Kenyon Drake in there was good enough for that position. So, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, let's do two tight ends first. I've got the newly out of retirement legend, Rob Gronkowski. Ah! The party boy is back, baby. Okay. And also Austin Hooper. <laughs> what? What is that second choice? Austin Hooper, man. He's from the Browns. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Um. Okay. So I have uh, Travis Kelsey of the Chiefs and Zach Ertz from the Eagles. Solid tight end game. Mm-hmm. All right. And then three... Three receivers. Receivers trio. So I've got Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, and in the slot, I've got Juju. All right. All right. That's good. That's that's pretty solid. I'm also very okay, solid. So I got DeAndre Hopkins, Julio Jones, 
and Mike Evans. But I'm just kind of realizing now that I'm Mike Evans and Travis Kelsey right next to each other. And so I could swap out and I could do Gronk and Tyreek Hill and it's, it would still work. Um, mm. I don't know. I don't know whether I want speed or, or strength at that point. Well, hey. So those are our lineups. So a, a very honest opinion, okay? I, I can't really compare because I'm not as knowledgeable about the sports world as yeah. you or about like stats and all that stuff. So if so if our teams went head to head, who who do you think comes out on so, top? What I'm thinking is you beat me at coaching staff and I would say in terms of offensive power and O-line, we're probably pretty equal. Um, D-line, we're probably pretty equal. Linebackers, the same. And so maybe I have you beat at the secondary and, and the cornerbacks. And then like special teams is really hard to evaluate. But I, I don't know. I think... I think Lamar Jackson opens up more possibilities on offense than Drew Brees does because he can scramble, right? And you can create like different spreads with CMC and Kenyon Drake in the backfield. Um, Juju also. And also if you have Gronk blocking, that's like just an extra lineman, honestly, at that point. So yeah, I see it. I feel like Hooper, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel too strongly about Hooper, but yeah. All I'm saying is that you need two people to defend Gronk, bro. Like, he's just a tank. And even if those two people on him, he's grabbing anything. Now, mind you, he's also, reti- he was retired. But, I mean, I don't know. I think he's looking pretty good. He's looking in shape. Yeah. I, I think, though, I do have to say, and I don't know if this is just, like, a perspective from, like, a fan watching TV or, like, playing Madden, but it feels like no house, no matter how strong, like, the O-lines that we've created here, the sheer amount of talent in both of our D-lines, like this quarterback is running for their lives every play. Yes. I mean, J.J. Watt coming at you at a freaking steam train, and then you also got Aaron Donald too, just literally taking two humans, two 300-pound humans, and just parting them like the Red Sea. Just, it's it's ridiculous. There's no O-line that could stack up to any of these Mm -hmm. D-lines. I think that the next thing, the next thing to talk about, this is old... LeBron versus Kyrie beef, and I'm loving it. So, so I think you are a lot more well-versed on this issue than me. I really haven't been keeping up a lot with NBA um, sports drama. So what? So exactly what is happening between Kyrie and LeBron right now? I'm trying to figure out the beef. Is it is it over like these um, Black Lives Matter protests? Is it about coronavirus? Like what? 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 What's the situation? So the thing is, it's all very indirect, right? Nobody has come out and like added anybody yet. Um, but it's just very implicit. Uh, and it's all been doing been done by like reporting by uh, Shams Tarania, who you know, shout out to Shams. He's a icon, probably going to take Woj's spot in the next decade as the leading reporter in the NBA and also brand representation. Love it. How dare you? So essentially what happened is when the NBA had planned to come back um, and do the whole uh, rest of the season at Disney World, so that would include eight games uh, for all the teams and then a playing tournament for the eighth seed for both the Western and Eastern Conference and then uh, continuing the playoffs. So that was going to start July 30th, I believe, and then go until October 12th with a shortened offseason. 
uh, and then the next season possibly also being condensed starting in December. So this was all thought out very, very well. You had all teams, or I guess 22 teams. So only teams that were guaranteed to make the playoffs, um, as well as those who were still contenders. So I believe that was nine teams in the East. And then what does that make? Um, I can't math. 13 or 15 teams. Oh my God. What is my math? 13 teams in the West. Yeah. So Spurs being amongst those uh, playoff contenders, but not quite in the playoffs yet. But um, LaMarcus is out. So that story's over. Anyways, the point was that this was thought out very well. Um, So they were all going to be in Disney World. Uh, They were going to be limited in the resort. Uh, They could go see each other's games, but they weren't allowed out for the three months that the NBA is going to resume in order to risk any spread of the coronavirus. They were going to be tested before every game. They were going to allow family to visit, I think, for every round of the playoffs you advanced in. Um, That being like, obviously, you are distanced more and more. You continue throughout the season. So like, if you don't make playoffs, you get to go home after a month, right? But uh, if you do continue, you you should have the right to be able to see them. Um, All of this event like they're taking a lot of precautions in terms of quarantine so this all happened um i believe 29 of the 30 teams voted yes on it and the only one who didn't was the trailblazers because the way they're positioned in the west i think they're the ninth seed um now they have to compete now they have a lot more competition in retaining that ninth seed rather than just doing a direct play in uh with the eighth seed um, at the moment, right. I think who's the Pelicans or the Grizzlies right now. Um, so Trailblazers were the only team that didn't vote yes because they're disadvantaged as, by this. I mean, but you could also argue that so are the Pelicans and Grizzlies. And so is whoever's at the bottom of the Eastern Conference right now, but in the playoff bracket. So this has all been done. LeBron said he cannot wait to return and be a part of the season. Kyrie Irving came out and said, with the current protests going on, Black Lives Matter protests, and the state of the United States at this moment, we should use the momentum and the leverage of the movement at this point in time. We should use our resources, whether that be our platform or our money, to be able to support those um, movements and really make a significant change in the country, which is obviously, like, hands down, something that would be great to see. At the same time, you have already seen a lot of players helping out. DeMar DeRozan has been at protests in California. I know Bryn Forbes, Lonnie Walker have been doing ones in San Antonio. Um, You've had a lot of players helping out with the protests. You have a lot of celebrities helping out with the protests. Um, So Kyrie Irving said that. Pat Beverly, in response, directly at Kyrie Irving, said, King LeBron said we're going to play, so we're going to play. Which I love because I never thought Pat Beverly would take LeBron's side and everything, but that was that was interesting to hear. Um, so now it becomes an issue of yes, the NBA has organized a way to resume the season and also to fix itself so it can continue next season as well. Um, but at the same time, you do have I think Kyrie, I think I'm reading is has recruited 80 plus NBA players. Or I guess recruit is a strong word, but 80 plus NBA players agree with Kyrie Irving's statements and the fact that, you know, we should use this time to really make a better change for America. Um, now, here is the, the fishiness and where like the moral compass turns a little bit. 
LeBron could win his fourth ring. I don't think he has been this close to his fourth ring since probably like I would I would say 2013. Because 20 the 2016 championship was a miracle, honestly, what he was able to pull off. But like he has set himself up as a number 1 seed, right? With the Lakers or with the Clippers rather being his only competition in my eyes. I th- I think the Lakers and Clippers will be the true finals whoever they face in the East won't compare. Very true. So he has set himself up for success. But at the same time, knowing he is a very, very big spokesperson for the NBA, he has not come out and said, you know, I don't care about the protests. I don't care about the movement. I'm going to play. Um, and obviously he's not going to. But the issue is, is LeBron was a person who immediately jumped on the boat of if the season can continue, I will be a part of it because, you know, obviously he has the motivation to be able to win that ring. Pat Beverly is on a team that is well within championship contention. He might also want to play. And so the reason that this becomes skeptical or, and it kind of lies in some troubling areas is that Kyrie Irving is on the Brooklyn Nets, who are the seventh seed, I think, right now in the East. Um, they didn't have KD this year. Right, they definitely knew they weren't in playoff contention because Katie was going to be out the entire year with, I think, what was it, a- Achilles, Achilles injury. Yeah. Um. So Kevin Durant has also joined him in support. Carmelo Anthony has joined him in support. Chris Paul has, and Donovan Mitchell. And I think for the most part, maybe besides oh Dwight Howard too. Um. Oh Dwight Howard really changes things. Never mind that. So. For the most part, excluding Dwight Howard, it seems like, okay, Dwight Howard is used to me, but it seems like because without Dwight Howard, <laughs> like most of these players, it becomes easier for them to put their time into supporting the movement because the NBA season doesn't seem worth it to them, right? If you are a team that wasn't bound to win a championship, I can see why, you know, this is a very easy decision for you to make. And I'm not saying that obviously winning a a title is any means of comparison to like helping to solve racism in America, but I can see LeBron's point and probably why he's taken his time to come out with a statement yet. Um, But yeah, now reading this, I think Dwight Howard has also joined the side of um, he would rather create change um, for, you know, uh, America rather than win his first championship, which which I think is a very uh, notable thing to do. Like it, it's it's necessary in the in this time, and it's wonderful that he's doing that. But at the same time, I understand that LeBron, as like the media claims him to be the king of the NBA, has I think it's it's been like at least three or four weeks since he's said anything. Has really taken his time to figure out how he should go about this. Yeah, I this. So correct me if I'm wrong. This would be Dwight Howard's first ring that he's ever gotten assuming assuming that the lakers win this yeah i think the closest he got was lakers magic when he was like top of his that was like the peak of his career when he was like defensive player of the year superman yeah Yeah, so that's that's actually really important because you know it's it's kind of one thing for you know the lakers organization to being like look we're in a really 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 uh, influential spot right now. You know, we've got the King and we've also got AD. Uh, this is our year to win it. Uh, for LeBron, you know, this is the year to get his fourth ring. Uh, so it seems like if you are a member in the Lakers organization, you're probably 
on the side of LeBron, A, because he's your teammate, but also B, like it's in your own self-interest to keep the season going because you have a very good chance of winning a ring Mm -hmm. if you beat the Clippers. So then Dwight Howard, you know, coming out and saying like, yo, all that stuff doesn't really matter in the grand scope of, you know, police violence and these greater, uh, and these protests making change in America. That's, that's actually really, really, really noble and very interesting. Yeah. And so now I'm reading, um, Shams has posted our Dwight Howard statement. So he says, our main objective is to raise awareness and gain transparency on the things that concern us collectively. Many of our fellow players are afraid to voice their concerns and are continuing to follow along with what they believe they have to. We are not attempting to halt the resumption of the basketball season in Orlando. It would be silly to think we could stop a force as powerful as the NBA, nor would we want to consider the power, well, the wonderful opportunities they have afforded us. So I think it's very much that, like, you know, in this time, they've taken into consideration, you know, what opportunities they have to be part of something great. And yeah, I, I, I really, I, I think I support these the, this coalition of players i think it was funny um game of zones kind of predicted this quote unquote um with Kyrie creating his own league but it, it is for a greater good and obviously if, if you can't accept players sitting out for for this cause then you know, I don't know i think you need to reevaluate your love for sports at the same time uh, on that statement where he feels like certain players can't speak up i think that's very true um you know, with anchors like Laura Ingram telling LeBron to shut up and dribble, but then also supporting Drew Brees' anti-protest views. So, you know, it's very much uh, these player these players having a chance to be able to do something great and you know support them through it. And kind of like along the same vein, just getting away from the NBA, I think we're really seeing athletes starting to really find their voice and speak about issues that not only pertain to them, but also just make America or trying to push America into a better space. We are recent alumni of University of Texas, and a lot of UT students, student athletes, um, have, you know, they created a statement about how given the you know, the, these protests uh, are being an impetus for social change to actually discontinue the eyes of Texas. Discontinue the eyes of Texas, which is a song that's been around for what, 120 or not that long. The university was around for 120 years or something like that. But I think it's, it's, it's been around since the fifties. Yeah. Um, do you, do you know the history of the eyes of Texas? I don't know the full history. I I can shed a little bit of light on that. And I understand, and it's kind of weird for me too, being a sports fan. You know, I before I learned kind of the history of the eyes of Texas, um, you know, just imagining, we talked about this in the last episode, but our first ever football experience, double overtime versus Notre Dame, like my horns were up above my head and we were screaming the eyes of Texas as loud as we could because it was just a ridiculous, crazy win that really brought everyone together. But kind of looking back on that, it's it's very, so I don't know, like, so the eyes of Texas also has like a place in my heart that, I don't know, it's linked to very good positive memories, but in the grand scope of the history of it, I can understand why it's pretty problematic. So the Eyes of Texas um, began at UT um, as a tradition um, uh, 
or yeah, it began at UT as a tradition. Um, it was performed and debuted in a minstrel show. Um, I, I, I can't remember if it was during Roundup in particular, um, but it definitely was uh, performed during a minstrel show. For people that don't know what a minstrel show is, um, white people would dress up and depict very horribly inaccurate, stereotypical uh, depiction and very rather cartoonish depictions of black people. And they would even put on blackface, um, have lipstick all over their lips. So they have like big puffy lips and just horrible caricatures of black people. Um, and the eyes of Texas actually debuted at one of those shows and became a tradition ever since. I mean, when you look at that history, then the argument kind of gets a little, a little bit more persuasive of, why do we need to sing the eyes of Texas? Why can't we actually have another song? You know, like the, you know, the Texas fight song. Maybe it, I don't know. I don't know about the Texas fight song, but I mean, just like maybe we can pivot to another song that doesn't necessarily have. I think we've, we've also used deep in the heart of Texas a lot at football games too. And so like, that's just been a, a fun chant that we always have. And yeah, I also along the Texas fight just and also Texas Longhorn by Django Walker, like all amazing anthems for us to have that aren't nearly as problematic. At the same time, I do have to say, as recent graduates, I feel like it is a lot easier for us to recognize, also being younger, recognize the the issues with the songs and being willing to, you know, accept the fact that it needs to be changed. Um but I think my dad was talking to other coworkers who, you know, have graduated UT 20 to 30 to maybe even 40 years ago. And, you know, when you're, when you've been to Longhorn for that long, their, their reaction was like, there's no way we're changing the song. Like that's, it's That will always be the song. And I, I think it was just a very interesting perspective. I mean, that's gotta be changed along with a lot of other building names on campus. I think, what is it? Hog, Littlefield, Painter, and RLM. Oh, and DKR. Yeah. It's so it's so interesting. Um, for example, like Creekside, one of the residence halls at UT, before it was called Creekside, it was actually named after a, a UT, a former UT administrator that was a grand dragon in the KKK. So it's not like there isn't precedent for this. Yeah. You know, of changing names. Now, mind you, he was in the actual KKK, but I don't think it's a far reach to be like, I mean, I listen, uh, I understand that Painter was, you know, a president of UT, but also he just was not a very good dude. That definitely does not reflect the current values of the university, um, as well as Robert Lee Moore. You know, you've had many a built, you have, you've had many a classroom in that the third building. and fourth year, a hundred percent of my classrooms were in the RLM building. And he, there's also, I think, like a, a house of his in West Campus, close to Abel's. Yes, it is. Uh, well, we pass it by all the time. It's on Rio. Uh, it's on the Rio Grande Street um, between 23rd Street and 24th Street, right before you get to Abel's. It's like this historical little house. Yeah. Um, it's a Robert Lee Moore house. It's weird. It's so, I feel like it's a real, I think it's a real estate office or like a something like that right now. Or I don't know if it's been preserved. It's either... It's either a real estate office or it's right next to that oh, real estate okay. office and it's being preserved. But yeah, no, it's it's weird. Yeah, I don't I don't know, and man. And again, I know my time at UT has ended, but please, for the love of God, if you're going to rename it, 
ask people who actually have to be in that building and do not name it PMA. I understand that stands for physics, math, and astronomy. And as a physics major, I appreciate physics being first. That's cool and all. But AMP would be such a great name because not only does it include all the subject material that is covered within that building, but it also spells out a unit of measurement, which would be much appreciated for a nerd like me. AMP is just, it's also just badass. And it rolls off the tongue better, like PMA. Like those are like syllables. You could just say AMP. It's just, it's just better. And then with DKR, what was interesting is I remember watching My All American in high school and it like really got me oh, pumped yeah. about, uh, I think with Aaron Eckhart, really got me pumped about Texas coming to Texas. I remember I had, uh, I think there were members of the Reagan marching band who like auditioned for it and got to be like the background marching band members in the movie. So that was really cool for them. But yeah, so obviously a wonderful story about how Daryl K. Royal um, brought us our first two, three championships um, in the 60s and 70s, um, which, you know, besides those, we only have the Rose Bowl with Vince Young, um, you know, and Mac in 2005. But at the same time, something that they don't cover in the movie and something you don't pick up on until told afterwards is that he did not support black players playing for the UT football team. Oh, no. He was not very happy about that. So <laughs> it's horrible. And then imagine if you're if you're a black student athlete, you've got to play in a stadium and practice in a facility that is just named after this man. Great UT legend, but at the expense of people that look like you. That's weird, isn't it? And the thing, though, is that it doesn't only change the name of the stadium. I have a friend who's in Texas Royals. Um, and so it's hard to kind of distinguish that name from the history of UT. That is very true. Now I will say, um, Texas Royals does, uh, and I think this is how a lot of groups kind of justify, Mm -hmm. um, either the presence on campus or like staying, uh, or or keeping that name is that Daryl K. Royal, uh, created a fundraiser or a, or a, uh, a fund yes. right uh, for Alzheimer's mm-hmm. research so and, and of course the Texas Royals you know the spirit group uh, they raise money for um, Alzheimer's research every single every single year and that's obviously a great cause and it's amazing uh, but it's just very interesting seeing how like there are different aspects of our society that just are very colored by racism and other isms that we don't even realize. Like I, it's so interesting having conversations about my parents with um, the statue removal in particular. And I know that statue removal was actually a big deal at UT um, when we were incoming as freshmen, um, either around Austin or at UT itself. Like my parents in particular, they they are of the opinion that statues don't necessarily memorialize someone but they are a reminder about key points in history. So uh, it it's important to have those reminders so that you don't go back and you don't repeat history. Me, I have a different view, obviously, but uh, it's, I don't know, but it's very interesting seeing just the sheer amount of like Confederate generals that are around the United States, especially in the South. And even like at UT campus, how many people are just you know, just these racist I think, people. I think the key argument here is that, yes, we ought to learn from the history of the United States and how the Confederacy was created and about the Civil War. And those are all things that obviously need to be discussed and taught in a history in any U.S. history class. But at the same time, 
the same curriculum is taught in Germany where you are explained the atrocities and horrible crimes that were committed against humanity by Hitler. But you do not need the statues to remind you of that. It is something that you can you learn in the history class. Yeah, I I doubt that Germany has any Hitler statues out in public for the for the public to see. But hey, a lot of a lot of change happening in the United States, man. You know, especially from you know this week, we're coming off of two pretty important Supreme Court rulings. Yeah regarding, you know, LGBTQ workplace discrimination as well as uh, the deferred action childhood. Um, crap, I forgot the last but basically, thing. But, but, the, but DACA. Yeah, blocking Trump from ending DACA. Very important. I don't know. I just, I, I think that like for for young people, maybe it's just like we just have this energy or maybe we just aren't so set in our ways and stubborn. But I like when I saw those two Supreme Court rulings, I thought like, duh, no brainer. That's such a that's a good thing to do. Right. Um, But then like explaining it to people in my family and especially my parents, like they really needed to they needed that extra explanation of why these things were important. My parents really got like um, the LGBTQ workplace discrimination thing. But my dad was actually really confused of wait, why was it even six three? Who were the three judges that um, abstained from that? I, I don't know. Let, let's look. Oh, I, I, oh. I, oh, I do. It's um, it was Alito. Okay. It was Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. and it was Clarence Thomas. Not, not surprised by Kavanaugh. Uh, I, I am not either. Uh, but you know the the chief justice and then another uh, justice who were con- who are conservative uh, flipped over to the the Democratic side or the, sorry the liberal Neil side. Neil Gorsuch, right? Um, to pass. Uh, yep, Neil Gorsuch. Yep. Um, so, you know, and he was he was Trump's first appointment um, in his in his presidency. So I was very happy to see that. Um, but, yeah, no, I my, my dad was very confused because he was like, wait, what do you mean? You can't you can't fire people just because they're gay. That doesn't make sense. And I said, Dad, you got to listen under under the way that the Constitution was framed. You cannot fire someone on the basis of sex. But sex at that point did not include gender identity or sexual orientation. So you could absolutely fire someone if they were gay and you were uncomfortable with it. And my dad was just so confused. He was like, well, that that doesn't make any sense. Why was this ever a thing? Um, and then also same thing for DACA too. I needed to kind of explain to my dad um, what DACA was. Um, my dad has a very interesting view on um, immigration that I don't necessarily agree with. Or, no, these are people that were brought over to the United States as children. They didn't necessarily have a say in them coming here, but they are here. And DACA doesn't offer them a path to citizenship. It just allows them to be able to work here, you know, and get student loans so they can have an education or they can get a degree and which will lead to better, you know, professional job opportunities. And, you know, I think I saw a figure that there were like, 29,000 DACA recipients working in professional jobs or working in essential jobs like it's that's a significant amount of people that you just be kicking out of the country in the middle of a pandemic if you didn't allow this to happen and you know that passed five to four very narrowly yeah I think with with the idea that young people just expect it or like on the quote unquote on the right side of history you know you can take that all the way back to like Vietnam War protests like the hippie movement like it's just a general thing that people become stuck in their own ways at a certain age. 
So anything that is new in terms of like, whether it be like music or whether it be like a social or cultural understanding is just very hard to understand. And I mean, that's not to generalize all old people. There are definitely a lot of old people who are progressive and understand what's going on. My grandpa's one, for instance, who's like talks very, very well about, you know, the democratic primaries and like the black lives matter protests and police brutality. But I think it's just a general thing. And it's, I feel like if there's ever going to be like a way to break that system of whether it's just young is like more liberal and old is more conservative, but for the, for the time being, yes, wins, wins nonetheless, but uh, and it's just a step in the right direction and hopefully more and more can be done as protests continue. What, what have you been doing to keep yourself occupied in, in self-isolation? Cause we are what? three months four months into three months self-isolation almost almost oh, actually almost four months right because we we came a little bit before winter for for spring break to three months we because we left like march 14th march 15th and so april may june uh, three months yeah. that's right okay so three months so yeah so we're, yeah, we're almost three months in like what do you feel fatigued like what are you, what are you doing to keep the mind sharp so to keep the mind sharp in particular. So I feel like for the first month, month and a half, I was I had like this motivation to keep working out and to stay fit and to eat right. And it worked like I'm just um I've lost all of that momentum and adrenaline and it's really hard to keep going anymore. And at this point it happens. Man. I'm just waiting for like a gym again and I'm just like I'm not gonna do anything. I've got like I was never a person to so in my own apartment, I've gotten really good at developing this this habit of I don't buy anything I know is bad for me. So that way, when I'm in the apartment and craving something, my laziness beats my hunger or, or, or my craving. So essentially, if it's like midnight and I'm like, you know, I could really go for like a chocolate or so like for some chocolate or some cookies or like a cake, like. I don't have it in my place for me to be able to eat and I'm not going to go anywhere to get it at that point because I'm just too tired. And so that that's a like a, a hack that I've built in for myself. The problem here is that when you have like parents who care for you, this sounds so horrible, but like a mom who's just consistently like, what do you want from HGV? Like, I'll get it for you. Like, whatever you want to eat. And then it's just Pop-Tarts and Oreos and cheesecake and it's just, it's horrible. And ice cream... So that's just gotten to me because I it, I cave under pressure. I'll sneak down in the middle of the night and get my midnight snack because it's in the house and I, I just have it so close to me. I feel so ashamed. Last night for a midnight snack, I made three sandwiches. <laughs> three turkey sandwiches. It, it's I So I empathize with you 100%. I used to be so good at curbing the midnight snack but oh my gosh it it just it just spiraled out of control so the most recent thing is um there are these uh two little uh, adorable boys um that we know in our community and so my sister and i were visiting them recently just to see how they were doing social distancing of course um and they were just talking about how many skills they're trying to develop over the summer and how they're using their summer productively they're probably what 13 and 10 12 and 10. So, you know, like I think seventh and fifth grade. 
eighth and fifth grade. Middle They're school, going into eighth and fifth yeah, grade, respectively. Age. Okay. So, gotcha. Um, you know, they have like the one summer reading assignment that they have to do, but then on top of that, like, you know, they're watching movies, they're Star Wars nerds too. Um, but on top of that, like they're each like setting out to do something on their own, which I found amazing. And so the older one is reading a lot and I gave him some of my old books and it was just like really fascinating because he's really just trying to expand his knowledge. And it's not before it was like, I just give him Star Wars books. No, he's like, no, give me like a new genre. Like I'm trying to figure out stuff. And I was like, I wish I had this determination to like, just be a better person all of a sudden. What a king. So, um, I've recently taken it upon myself to finally be able to solve a Rubik's cube efficiently. <gasps> Shut so up. So that's what I've been doing for the past two weeks is like learning the algorithms. And so whenever I'm, I get bored when I'm doing training for my job, I just start doing it again. So I've gotten pretty good at being able to like do the, the first layer and second layer and getting the third layer matching it all correctly on the sides. Those algorithms are hard to, to memorize at least. Like I can do it looking at the paper, but it's hard to memorize. So that, that's my goal is to be able to do that and like maybe get it under a certain amount of time by the end of the summer. So that's how I'm keeping my mind sharp. How about you? Chess. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I don't know where the desire to finally, I don't know, learn chess or participate in it came from. But I just one day just got really super into chess. No, I'll tell you exactly what it was. There was a random video that came up on my YouTube feed. All right. And it was this guy explaining the drama in the chess community. It was only like seven minutes. So it kept my attention. But then I just got so involved in the drama and chess. And I actually kind of got a little corollary to debate because the way that he describes it is that uh, there's this one grandmaster, his name is Hikaru Nakamura. Uh, he's a grandmaster um, in, in, in America. And by the way, learning like the, the intricacies of like chess tournaments or um, I don't know, just like, like uh, how you get different titles is also very interesting because becoming a grandmaster is ridiculously hard and is a gigantic accomplishment. I mean, it is the best, uh, besides world champion, it's like the, it's the best title is the highest title that you can receive in the game of chess. Um, so this guy, um, uh, this, this, uh, grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura, uh, he recently began streaming chess games on Twitch. Uh, there's this, a website called chess.com. It's free to play for anybody to just play chess with people from across the world. And he's like explaining strategies, openings, um, tactics, calculations, like how you get, you know, how you get checkmate, how you can get to draws, how you can use different techniques. Um, but in a way that people who, uh, don't know how to play chess can understand, so it just becomes very accessible to people. And he's become very popular in the chess world um, throughout, I don't know, from the past like year or so from streaming to the point where he actually plays with um, very popular streamers, teaches them chess. Uh, right now, they just recently ended like the largest chess tournament over Twitch. Uh, and you know, a bunch of GMs, uh, shorthand for grandmasters, were providing commentary over it. So they were explaining like why this move was particularly good or why this move was a blunder. Um, and it was just, it just, I don't know. I just became so engrossed in, in, in this just. I don't know, in online chess and streaming chess and everything. It was so crazy. Uh, but so we're, so where the drama comes in is that chess is also a very elitist sport. Uh, whereas like, you know, there are some grandmasters, uh, that believe that chess should be a accessible platform, you know, that broadening the game out to more 
people will make the community better because the more people you have playing, uh, the better it is for your community, the more popular it gets, um, you know, stuff like that, right? But there are some folks that, some other grandmasters that believe that you should only play chess if you're good at chess or if you're a prodigy, which doesn't really make sense because the only way you can get better at chess is if you're playing it. So if you're shamed into not playing chess, then it just, it just sucks. You'll never get into the, you'll never get into the, into the activity. So anyway, I just, I thought I I found corollaries from that in debate because I think our debate coach, um, had this philosophy of making it very accessible you know, like we always had to put our our cases, our evidence on open source, or at least where you can find like the citations for it. Um, and you, know, you always disclosed what you what you were reading at the tournament for prep, um, what you know affirmative case that you were reading uh, for prep. So, uh, and then there are also some people in the debate community that believe like, no, I'm not telling you shit. So you're just going to have to figure out when we read it. So, you know, I, I found that there was very interesting parallels between chess and debate. And, and to continue that, like, praise, like, also with our debate coach, he very much believed that. And we were, like, privileged at a high school to have, like, such a good debate program within our city as our city is not very strong in it uh, compared to other cities, I would say, across the U.S. or even Texas, right, compared to, like, Houston or Dallas or Austin. Um, very true. For at least policy and L.D., um, in terms of like progressing and because of that, he was very encouraging of students from other schools to reach out for support or advice and learning about debate. Cause he really just believed in, you know, making sure that everybody has access, access to it. So if you came from a school in our district that didn't have a debate coach, but wanted to learn, you know, he was going to help you do that, whether you were competition for us or not. Like he was, everybody should be able to allow participate in the, activity because it's just a very eye-opening activity. But also what leads me to say that is when you talk about chess, it reminds me of the Bobby Fischer documentary we watched in debate. And that's another thing that really kind of brought me back to debate. He had us all sit down and watch this documentary about Bobby Fischer. For people that don't know who Bobby Fischer is, he was a very, very, very good chess player um, that played for the U.S. He became a grandmaster and eventually a world champion of chess. And then he also went a little bit crazy because of chess. It was it's just it was just an amazing story. It was an amazing documentary. But no, it just like there were so many parallels. I just I couldn't. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I I eventually got into uh, learning chess. So the way he rightly explained it to me was in a, I think it's, I'm hoping I'm not getting this backwards, but he said in, in a chess round, the number of possibilities it can end or it can go like uh, in the number of ways it can unravel or develop, right? Is to, the analogy that in comparison is maybe like the GTA five map, maybe a little bigger, right? But the number of ways a debate round can develop or unravel is equivalent to the map of Minecraft. And so I think he was really trying to implement that in our heads when we watched that. And he was just like, you know, there's, I did not hear this GTA. Oh, I remember him talking to me. This stuck so much in my head. And that like, and I just thought about it for a while and I was like, Minecraft's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty big. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. So I've actually been like learning chess um, and and using that to kind of 
occupy my time. It's very interesting. Like I'm learning openings. I'm learning um, what you should do if a certain piece is moved. And just like the calculations, like uh, like I'm also watching this guy on Twitch too, um, uh, GM uh, Nakamura. And it's just amazing. Like he, well, he, first off, he started out as a chess prodigy, right? So from a very young age, he was just very good at it, but he also had, you know, years and years and years of developing his skill and learning it. So watching him like, and, and chess.com is, is, is on the desktop. So you can do things with the mouse, like you can show calculations and, you know, uh, when certain pieces move. So He's in like this one particular bind and he's showing like all the possible moves that he can make and what his opponent will make. He's like, if I go here, it'll go here, then it'll go here, then it'll go here, then it'll go here, then it'll go here. Like literally 10 moves in advance for multiple pieces. And I'm like, what? That is crazy to be able to think about ways, you know, that the way that these things move. It's it, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, so I'm a, I'm a beginner in chess. I put um, I, I began a game on chess.com uh, against a robot. I put it to level zero and I lost. <laughs> I mean, I can, I remember playing against like the Microsoft chess thing and I, I lost like so many times and I would undo moves cause I'd be like, where did I go wrong? Even when I, I, I undoed so many moves and I still lost. It was, it was crazy. It was have embarrassment. You, have but, you learned what castling is yet? Yeah. Castling. It's when you, uh, it's, it's, it's what you can do. Um, whenever you, you kind of need to move your king out of danger or move it out of that, uh, move it out of a certain file. So you can, uh, you, so if you're, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine a chessboard. So if your king, um, is, uh, in, in its original spot. So if you're white, then it would be on the E file. Um, and then, uh, if your castle or your rook is on the G file, no, no, on the H file. And you and you have your bishop, or and your and your bishop and your knight is not in between them, then you could actually move your king over to the G file, and then move your castle to the F file. So you do like this little like switch, kind of like switch places. All I remember is my dad trying to pull that ish when I was first learning how to play, and seeing him move two pieces at once. I was like, you can't do that. Like, there's no way that's allowed. <laughs> No, that actually blew my mind when I saw it happen. I'm like, wait, no, you can't do this. What? What? What is this? It's ridiculous. But anyway, yeah, no, just so that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to learn chess. I'm trying to be a grandmaster, is what I'm basically saying. Um, oh, and the other thing that I'm also really uh, getting involved in, and this is just kind of a blast of the past, and I, I, I kind of count this as sharpening the mind. But I'm also watching Avatar: The Last Airbender again for the 500 millionth time. So here's my thing. I love this show so much. And I think it's amazing. In high school was when I went back and I watched the full thing um, like in order because, you know, as a kid, you just watched it whenever it came on TV. But I have this, I don't know if it's an inability, but I, I can't rewatch shows. I don't know what it is, but like whether it's like my favorites like scrubs the office or parks and rec or friends like things that you could just turn on a random episode and enjoy and even avatar is it's like this uh any single time i rewatch something I mean, this is the weirdest way to think about it i think about how much time is being wasted when i could be watching a new thing i mean i get that but also you you have to understand that you have to put yourself in a certain mind space 
You know, like you're not going to watch new things unless you go in with the intention that I'm going to watch new things. If you go in and you're like, I feel like I'm going to rewatch it, then you might as well just rewatch it because you're not going to try to, you know, watch but, other things. But the other thing is also I can't rewatch it. I like I hate knowing what happens and I hate I don't know how to take myself out of the the mindset of like ex- like expecting what's about to happen because of like I just have the previous knowledge of it. For for me, what helped what helps me? A, I don't have your problem. Like I can rewatch stuff all the time. Like I can pick up The Office anytime and watch it, or How I Met Your Mother and watch it anytime. Um, but the way that I kind of get around that feeling is whenever I'm rewatching something, I try to pay attention to a certain theme so that it, it's more of a creative process. So, for example, for me, I was always told, and I was one of those diehard, you know, Zuko's redemption arc is the best redemption arc I've ever seen in television, right? But I didn't understand that I was making this, I I was saying this statement without really knowing what I was saying. Like, well, what is the part of a redemption arc? Why is it so good? You know? So that was my intention when I went in watching Avatar The Last Airbender. Obviously, I loved the entire show and I've watched it like, I want to say like literally 10 or 15 times over the course of my life. But I went in with a specific intention of like, okay, I'm going to enjoy the show, but in parts where Zuko is on the screen, I'm really going to analyze it and try to figure out why is it that his redemption arc is the best arc in TV. And I'm almost at the, I'm almost to Sozin's Comet. And I'm telling you right now, it's the best redemption arc I've ever seen in TV. It's amazing. But, but now I can actually articulate why it is. And and the reason why is because with other redemption arcs, what would happen is that you have a character that is initially very bad, right? Or an anti-hero. But very often, lazy writing happens where, you know, there isn't this gradual build where they, you know, they figure out that what they're doing is wrong. They have almost this impulse in this big battle to do the right thing. And all of a sudden, that you know, decision to, I don't know, turn on someone completely expunges all the past sins that they've done and everything is fine between them and, you know, the, and, and the protagonist. And that is not a good redemption arc. Uh, Or for example, like Severus Snape. A lot of people say that Severus Snape has a very good redemption arc. I don't think so. I think he has a, I think he has a bad redemption arc. And the reason why is because he didn't really care about Harry. In fact, he made his life a living hell and he was only doing these things out of this selfish love for his mother. That was, it was just weird, right? So he didn't actively choose to be better. He was just doing something out of obligation over a very selfish emotion versus Zuko. Even though he has a very long redemption arc, it, they the writers did such a good job of setting the groundwork of why his decision is so groundbreaking. In the first season, you see him constantly interacting and it sets the groundwork of, you know, he's not trying to capture the Avatar. He's not trying to kill the Avatar to bring glory to the Fire Nation or to make the Fire Nation, you know, the best empire in the world. He's doing it so that his father will love him again. So clearly, like, there's there's his motivations for doing something are very different than the motivations for the other people that, you know, for, for the other bad people like other, like Azula or like Fire Lord Ozai who just want to like destroy stuff. And then also in the second book, you see him constantly interacting with people when he is finally banished, banished, I don't know, from, from the fire kingdom. 
and he's interacting with people and he's seeing the horrible atrocities that the fire nation has brought on other people in the earth kingdom. There's this one episode Zuko alone where he, he finds this young boy whose family was displaced and he, you know, really cares for this boy. But when the boy finds out that he is, you know, the, the prince, then he completely shuts him down and, uh, just fears him. So you see the groundwork of them creating, like he has very different motivations from the other antagonists in the story. He is seeing the repercussions of his actions. And then, you know, he all, the, the most important part is that he makes mistakes. You know, he had the chance to, to, to join the avatar against Azula and do the right thing. But he decided that his selfish interests were going to come first because he just wanted his dad to love him again. So he decided to turn on the avatar and then he finally got what he wanted. He was the perfect prince, but he, but all of those previous experiences informed on him that what he was doing was not really him. And it wasn't a destiny that he, that, that was his, it was a destiny that he felt was created for him. And then finally when, and then also more importantly, when he finally joins up with the gang, there is not immediate redemption. He has to prove himself. He has to go with Sokka to, you know, free his dad and his girlfriend. He has to go with Katara to find the fire, the fire soldier that killed his mom, killed her mom. And you know, you, so there's not this immediate, like we're going to embrace you with open arms. You have to prove yourself because the past stuff that you've done to us doesn't, you know, absolve or isn't absolved by you just like deciding that you're going to do the right thing. So anyway, long winded answer to say that this show is freaking amazing and Zuko's redemption arc is the best in the whole world. So this next question I've kind of, I've already asked Michael just when we've had conversations, but uh, as an understanding of the cultural influence of this show, um, water tribe is supposed to be you know inuit i believe um yes i think so airbenders are southeast asia earth kingdom being china and fire nation being japan yeah i think so um either the air nomads are either like southeast asians or like tibetan um nepalese you know buddhist monks or, or at least um emulated off of them but yeah i think i think china definitely represents the earth kingdom very well and japan represents the fire kingdom very well so with the live action series that netflix is currently producing i'm hoping that the casting in this instance is done correctly god me too i'm really hoping so because m night Shyamalan, as much as i love him as a director and as much as i love zev patel he just he can't play zuko it was just it's not it's not the way the world works it's just not it's just not it you know (laughs) It's not, it's not it. it. I mean, not to say also that the entire movie was a flop um, in and of itself. But so pushing those things aside, right, and, and hoping that it is cast correctly. I've asked Michael this, and, and it's kind of the just which what type of uh, element vendor are you? But plus, on top of that, personality-wise, who do you think you are most alike? In the Avatar The Last Airbender universe. I'll let you go first. Okay. So astrology kind of factored into my decision a little bit. All right. And I'm not a very, you know, well versed in astrology, but it, you know, I, it has helped me learn a little bit about myself, about my impulsive tendencies as an Aries. Um, but that being said, I I do believe that the character that most closely resembles 
my personality or my tendencies or characteristics, whatever, what have you, is actually Zuko. I And, and the reason I believe that is because uh, for the longest time, especially in uh, there's in in high school in particular, but there are also some points in college. This there was this not like necessarily angsty, but there was this self loathing, you know, this like this this feeling that you're not good enough, that you need the praise of others in order to validate yourself, you know. Much like Zuko is going on his journey, you know, to to capture the Avatar to get his honor back because his father can give him back his honor. For some reason, I felt like I needed to do things. I needed to go on. You know, I need to do these trials and tribulations, do things out of my way to feel like I am useful to other people. So um, I think so. So in that way, it, I really, really connected with Zuko. Also, I really wanted to be Zuko because he's just, you know, he's, he's freaking he's freaking Zuko. You know, he's cool. He's a char- giant character in the in, in, in the series. But um, but yeah, no, just like this, this kind of feeling of like somewhat self-loathing and self-hatred. Um, a feeling of not being good enough and then need kind of this need to seek the validation of others to, to, to solidify who I was on in, on the inside really kind of drew me into it. But also like there are some other things as you like Zuko, you know, gets angry sometimes. Like I don't outwardly express my anger all the time, but I yell, you know, whether maybe it's in, you know, maybe it's joking. It's mainly joking. Maybe it's sometimes out of anger, but you know, I, but I'm also very loud and impulsive too. But, but yeah, what do you, do you think I resemble Zuko? So my thing is, I think in those aspects, you you resemble Zuko pretty well, but with the stuff like anger being a joke, I think that is very true. And I feel like the way you truly express yourself in front of other people is more in line of a very waterbender type of vibe. And um, I think one of like when they're describing the previous avatars, you remind me of I think it's Kurok. Um Avatar Kurok. So b- before so a- before Aang it's Roku and then Kyoshi and then Kurok. And so I don't know, there's just a vibe of like very calm, cool, collected that I get, and so so that's why I kind of pictured you as, because also in line with the what what is it the sixteen personality types like you know the peacekeeper the consoler, all of that stuff. Very true. I am I am the count. I'm the counselor. I think I think it was or the is no it console? the console. console the console. That's right. ESFJ. All right. So what what is what is your personality type, sir? So my personality actually. To remember what it is now i'm looking it up um so besides looks because when we had the top knot we were like we're totally Sokka. <laughs> uh so my person of the type is the campaigner so enfp enfp um, okay so what i think is personally and this is this also aligns with what i think i would be a, an earthbender is King Boomy. King Boomy is pretty badass, bro. He he is really amazing. Um probably like one of the best earthbenders to have ever lived in the universe, I think. He can metal bend. Which is pretty dope too. Um but on top of that just personality-wise, he he comes across as senile 
as like goofy as like crazy, but he's like all of his actions have like very serious thought out intentions behind them. So I don't know. I kind of liked it. I kind of like to think that I do that where I just like say random things all the time. I feel like I'm eccentric in that fashion. And I express in a way where I'm very lighthearted, but I make calculated moves when I need to. I get that. The thing. So when you originally told me that you thought that your your personality character was King Boomy, I was kind of thrown off because when I thought of King Boomy, I mean, he was just just like very just out there, like quite literally just saying random stuff. Yeah. Um, or just a very like a classic, like old senile kind of character. And I didn't necessarily like found that that fit your personality well. But then I think, yeah, I think when you explain it like that, it does kind of make sense that you don't really see the intention behind King Boomy's actions until like they're explained to you mm-hmm. or until you have to kind of like add it up by yourself. And I do find that you kind of do that. Like the the shoot system in Bo- is it Bossing Say? Omashu. Omashu. Sorry. The sh- like like that's something that's completely random. Like him riding the mail trucks. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, I think I think King Boomy is I think King Boomy is kind of cool. Um, I don't know what other. I, I okay. So I, like I said, I I'm glad that you chose an Earthbender because I do think that like you exemplify the qualities of an Earthbender. Mm-hmm. Um. But then I'm also trying to think of like who are other earthbenders in the show. There's um, Toph. You know, I mean, Toph, there's the boulder. Um, <laughs> also, I did not I did not immediately connect the boulder to being a caricature of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Oh until yeah, later and on. On top of that, I know it's outside the scope, but just as a cameo, that'd be great. Oh, it would have been amazing. Oh, for the new for the new live action. For the one? live action. I don't I don't see anyone else. I think The Rock would do it too. Mm-hmm. I hope he does. I hope he does it. Oh man. That would be hilarious. But yeah, other than that, I I don't really see another earthbender that you would kind of like conspiracy emulate. theory, the secret earthbender who um th- this is just a theory that I have. Um he pretends as if he is useless. But he waits to strike when people are most vulnerable and have accepted him. And that's the cabbage guy. Oh my god. I think I think he fakes the whole like my cabbages <laughs> the entire time. So that way people undermine him and don't expect to him like to have, been, have like any harm, right? To be him to be capable of anything. Like, you know, look at me, I'm just a I'm just a humble cabbage. You know, cabbage salesman. Also, he is surprisingly in uh, very similar locations that Team Avatar also finds themselves. He's doing in. his research, so dude. He 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 secretly like works. You know, in the scenes. You know, he mm-hmm. he's he's taking down foes that Team Ava- Team Avatar don't even necessarily get to yet. Yeah. You know, just pop pop pop. Cabbage guy. It's true. I did not know you were ENFP. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. I, I definitely knew that you were extroverted and you do feel very well, but I did not know that. Actually, no. I now, hmm. Now that I see it, I, I had to read to, a little bit more up into it. I had to submit my enneagram for for this training. <gasps> wait, 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 what's, your, what's your what's your enneagram? I believe it's a seven. Oh, interesting. And it's just, you, I mean, obviously, all of these things are just to make us feel better, make us feel like we belong to a group. But I mean, it couldn't be closer to the truth. 
I know. I know. Wait, I'm going to look up Type 7 real quick. Oh, just a just a news update. Adam Silver is confident in the restart. He believes in the bubble concept for a season despite player concerns and the spike in Florida COVID-19 cases. <sighs> what? All right. So you are a type seven. So in brief, sevens are extroverted, optimistic, versatile, and spontaneous. Okay. Those are the good qualities. Playful, high-spirited, and practical, they can also misapply their many talents, becoming overextended, scattered, and undisciplined. I think scatterbrained was the specific word that I read, and I thought that that nailed it. They constantly seek new and exciting experiences, but can become distracted and exhausted by staying on the go. They typically have problems with impatience and impulsiveness. At their best, they focus their talents on worthwhile goals, becoming appreciative, joyed, joyous, and satisfied. Basic fear of being depraved and in pain. No, sorry, of being deprived and in pain. Mm-hmm. So Basic COVID. desire to be satisfied and content to have their needs fulfilled. What about you? What's your Enneagram? I am a type two. And also, kind of along the lines of what you were saying, absolutely accurate for sure accurate i'll i'll read it off to you uh do you did you do you figure out what your wings were my wings yeah your wings i did not what does that mean okay so you know how so the enneagram is one through nine right yes. but it's oriented in such a way that it's got like nine on top but then like two three four and then like five six seven eight oh it's just what i like second closest was yeah, kind of, but like they're, but it's the any, it's the points that are like, that are most near your number. So for example, like if I was a type two, then my wings would be either one or three. So if you were seven, then your wings would either be eight or six. I see. Okay. Well, anyway, so, so I'll read off to you type two in brief. Twos are empathetic, sincere, and warm hearted. Okay. Yeah. They are friendly, generous, and self-sacrificing, oof, but can also be sentimental, flattering, and people-pleasing. Flattering is, okay, yeah, sure, flattering. (laughs) They're well-meaning and driven to be close to others, but can slip into doing things for others in order to be needed. (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, no. It hurts too much. Why? They typically have problems with possessiveness and with acknowledging their own needs. Basic fear of being unwanted, unworthy of being loved. Basic desire to feel loved. Hence Zuko. (laughs) So much Zuko. Now that I'm like looking back at what I was saying about how I emulate Zuko, like this last part really kind of solidifies to me like, oh my God, I just want to be loved, man. I just want to be loved. Yeah. But anyway, but my wing is three. I'm a type two wing three, which is more like the achieving kind of side. All right. I don't know about my wing. I'll have to look into it another time. Yeah. Let me know. Well, hey, that was good. We we really covered the gamut today, you know? We did. Sports, social, Avatar The Last Airbender, chess and debate. We always got to hit debate every single episode. I think we need to. Yeah. On that note, I would like to end on a, a a warning, I guess, so much as an encouragement to continue to be safe and continue to take COVID-19 seriously, despite what the governor of Texas says. Please wear masks. Yeah. 
please especially especially for our texas friends the way the second wave this isn't even the real second wave this is like the this precursor this is wave 1.5 yeah. out of stupidity. So please just, you know, keep inside. I know that I myself have felt the desire to get out and kind of low stir crazy, but wear masks, sanitize, wash your hands for 20 seconds with warm water with soap. Like, please. And although you may feel invincible as people who are closer to our age, you know, in your 20s and 30s who might not affect as easily, you know, be be aware of the the stuff that you could possibly spread to older members of your family. Very true. Very true. Stay safe out there, folks. All right. All That's right. it for this episode. Signing off. Signing off. <laughs>